Amen. Well, it's my privilege to be speaking to you this morning in Pastor Don's absence. He has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I guess he could do it again, but it's the first time his five daughters planned a retreat for themselves. And Don said, Nancy and I were wondering if we're going to get invited or not. And, and sure enough, they were invited. So it's the five daughters, no husbands, no grandkids, and Don and Nancy. And they are having a great time. Well, last Thursday, as I was finishing up my study session for this message, I got a text from my brother in Minnesota saying that he was going to be on the road for a few hours, and if I had time, let's chat. So I wrapped some things up, gave him a call, and I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to divorce camp. Now, you should know, my brother is a happily married man, 31 years. He has a great wife, but he is a lawyer. He's a family lawyer. And so this divorce camp is for lawyers. And he, I said, how ironic, you're going to divorce camp. I'm preaching on marriage this Sunday. <laughs> and he said, yeah, a few years ago, just before his daughter was getting married at this divorce camp, he was talking with another lawyer and saying how excited he was about his daughter's upcoming marriage. And she said, well, I hope your daughter has a plan B. And he said, I hope that she can have a marriage like I have, with mutual respect, love, deference towards one another. And she said, but Dan, don't you get it? You've won the marriage lottery. It's not like that for most people. I'm afraid that viewpoint and other viewpoints on marriage along with masculinity and femininity within our culture have permeated even the minds of regular church-going, Bible-believing people like you and me here this morning. So that many of us, when we come to a passage like this, that we're going to be looking at this morning, intuitively, alarm bells go off in our minds, red flags shoot up in our brains, and we're looking for loopholes for the text to say something other than it appears to actually be saying. But it's not just our modern secular culture that has caused us to have this kind of apprehension. Churches and pastors have misconstrued these passages to say more than what they actually say to reinforce a kind of selfish male dominance that is nowhere found in Scripture. And on the other hand, other churches and pastors have preached from texts like this and said less than what the text says about God's clear design for men and women, taking away God's expectations. So I think it's important to acknowledge right from the beginning that most, if not all of us, are going to be bringing baggage into a sermon like this more than we might normally have. But I'll make a commitment to you, and I'll ask you to join me in that. I'll handle this text in the same way that we as pastors try and handle all texts by sticking to what the text says, not saying more, not saying less, but in the spirit of Nehemiah 8.8, 8, give the sense of the passage so that we can understand the meaning. So please join me in your minds as we look at this text 
read and listen to it at face value, to hear what God has to say to his church across generations, cultures, and settings. Having said all that, please open your Bibles this morning to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the first seven verses. As you're turning there, remember, Peter is, 1 Peter is a book all about suffering, specifically suffering that comes as a result of identifying as a Christian, but with principles that can apply to all sorts of suffering that we might endure in life. A few weeks ago, Pastor Keith preached from chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, and then the next week from chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Our text this morning is a continuation of the theme introduced in chapter 2 and verse, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter then takes these instructions and specifically applies them to our interactions with those in authority over us, first in government and then in employment and now in this passage in marriage. And all these instructions stem from the instructions in chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, to keep away from evil desires with the end effect of God getting glory even from those who may accuse us of doing wrong because they see the honorable way in which we live our lives. Now, before diving in, let me address singleness for just a minute, as I'm afraid that part of the, past, part of the baggage that some of us may be bringing into the room this morning in the sense of thinking, here we go again, another message on marriage that doesn't relate to me. Well, let me assure you, there will be aspects of this message that relate to all people, regardless of whether you are married or not. And I think those will be apparent as we go. Now, notice how Peter begins chapter 3, verses 1 and 7, with the same word, likewise. In the same way that our relationship to authority in the previous situations brings glory to God, so now spouses glorify God by strategic submission to and humbly living together. Or to be more concise, Christian spouses glorify God by acting respectfully. Let's read 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray right now as we uh, look at your text this morning, give us eyes to see. May your Holy Spirit guide us, guide my words, Lord. May I not say any more or less than what you say here today. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's begin with the first six verses. and In them, see the beautiful strategy God lays out for wives submitting to their husbands. These verses can be looked at through three different lenses. Instructions, motivations, and illustrations. The first lens we'll look through is the lens of instructions, the instructions Peter lays out. Now it's important as we talk through these things that we see how Peter begins these instructions on submission. Notice Peter writes, wives be subject to your own husbands. Right off the bat, our, dis- our discussion is narrowed to the most intimate and restricted human relationship. Peter's not talking about the role of women in the church. That's for a different sermon. And more broadly, we're not talking about the role of women in society or on the job. Peter is limiting his instructions here to the God-ordained institution of marriage. That means, for those of you who are single adults outside of a marriage covenant, you are not over or under other people solely based on your gender. The only caveat to this would be the role of spiritual authority, spiritual authority God has granted to the elders in the church. Now, God has created the most sacred of all relationships to be a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church. Paul gives a more thorough description of this in Ephesians chapter 5, but for our purposes here, there is something about the role the wife has in marriage that reflects the role the church has to Christ, specifically the role of submission. And much like the bread and the juice we just ate this morning are symbols of the body and blood of Christ, so in this most sacred of institutions, the wife and the husband are symbols, sacred symbols of Christ and the church. As we look at the rest of Peter's instructions, it's also important for us to see not only how Peter describes what this submission looks like, but also what he doesn't say about it. For example, in talking about wives submitting to their husbands, he doesn't get into very many specifics. Things like, who should be the primary breadwinner? Should wives even have jobs? Who should handle the finances? Who should drive the car? Who should change the radio stations in the car? All of these important matters are ignored. For that, not only by Peter, but in the rest of Scripture as well. In other words, there's great freedom in marriage for the husband and the wife to decide these matters among themselves and other things that might come up. So what does Peter address when it comes to the instructions on submitting? Well, the first and most obvious is that there is some kind of submission, even obedience, that is going on. Both of those words are used in verses 1, 5, and 6. But let me just make an observation here from both verse 7 and also from Paul's instructions to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Both Peter and Paul address the wives when it comes to matters of submission. It's not for us as husbands to demand in our relationship to our wives. In other words, the admonition is for wives and wives alone to hear and respond to before God. Now this is quite revolutionary of Peter and Paul to do this, to address wives directly. 
The culture that they lived in didn't value women. And so instructions like these would have normally been given to husbands to know and to enforce. It's also revolutionary what Peter says next about submission. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. In Peter's day, the power women had came in how they adorned their bodies. The braiding of hair was an elaborate kind of braiding that would take time and assistance to pull off. And it was done both for beauty, but also seduction. The gold jewelry would have been an elaborate display of expensive hair ornaments, necklaces, bracelets, etc. To show off one's wealth and high social standing. And the clothing wasn't an admonition not to wear it any more than Peter is saying wives shouldn't take care of their hair or shouldn't wear jewelry. No, once again, the clothing he is talking about is what draws attention to oneself for the purpose of impressing others. Interestingly, Peter's instructions in these matters are not distinctly Christian. The Greek philosopher Plutarch, born in AD 46, wrote that these outward adornments were often perceived as instruments of seduction and that most women stay indoors if you take these adornments away from them. Commenting on this in her commentary, Karen Job wrote, In light of these common attitudes, Peter's instructions against outward adornment make sense if a Christian wife is attending Christian worship outside her home, and especially if doing so without her husband. Society would perceive that act alone as questionable. By leaving her home unadorned, she presumably would make her intent to attend worship, and not a tryst, all the clearer. Now, words like this in our culture today, both outside the church and even inside the church, can be another source of red flags in the minds of women. Our society teaches that women should be able to wear whatever they want, and men should respect that and not expect anything more. Now, it's absolutely true. Men should always be responsible for their actions, regardless of what others may or may not be doing or, or whatever. But it's equally true that women should not objectify themselves any more than men should objectify women. In other words, for all of us, our identity isn't in our looks, our age, our social status, our wealth, our allurement, or any of these external things. And this applies to all men and women, married or not, the world wants to objectify us and lure us to self-objectification. Resist that temptation. Find your identity in Christ. It's liberating that, that beauty isn't tied to the externals of hair, jewelry, and clothes. What do I mean by that? Well, look at what Peter presents in verse 4 as the alternative to this kind of objectification. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This reminds me of the passage in 1 Samuel 16, 7, 
when God was leading Samuel to anoint David as the next king of Israel, not one of his older, more obvious brothers. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, referring to one of the older brothers. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the other words, as the end of verse 4 says, we are here to please God. And God isn't impressed with our stuff, status, or sexual allure. He's impressed with our inner qualities, described here as being gentle and quiet in spirit. This word gentle is only used three other times in the New Testament. First one is found in the Beatitudes, and there is translated as meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is God's upside-down kingdom. The other two instances, both are used to describe Jesus. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus uses it to describe himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart. And in Matthew 25, it's translated as humble and used to describe Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble. And so this inward description is in no way demeaning, rather it is freeing. And it's not just a command given to wives in their relationship to husbands, but it is something expected of all men and women in all times and cultures. No longer are we shackled by the expectations of the world around us. In Christ, there is freedom, acceptance, value, and significance. Nothing about this is demeaning or implying some kind of less than idea of worth. Quite the opposite. Our value in Christ is the same value Christ has by the very fact that we are in Christ. So just like Christ submitted himself to the Father during his time on earth without ever losing one shred of his equality with God, so wives submit in their role in the marriage relationship without ever losing their equal standing before God, and without ever being in any way considered inferior to their husbands. Now let's turn our attention to the motivation Peter gives for the wives' submission to their husbands. And it's from this point that I get the strategic aspect of their submission. Notice Peter pivots almost immediately in verse 1 to unbelieving husbands. In each of the previous sections, Peter dealt with relationships we as Christians find ourselves in that may be difficult because of our identity with Christ. And that is what Peter's primary purpose for putting these instructions here for wives. To be certain, the instructions apply to all wives, but there is a special motivation that Peter wants his readers to see and be encouraged by, and that this kind of submission may be part of God's winning the unbelieving husbands to Christ. Notice how Peter describes this in the end of verse 1 and into verse 2. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. I like Peter's play on word here. Even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word. And here is another freeing encouragement for wives with unbelieving husbands. There is time for speaking the gospel, but just as importantly... There is time for living the gospel without speaking. And the kind of conduct Peter describes is both respectful and pure or holy. 
The word respectful is actually the word fear. Peter used back in chapter 2 and verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, honor the emperor. Unbelieving husbands observe in their wives their proper conduct demonstrated by their greater concern for their inward adorning rather than their external adorning, and that they live with great respect for God. It's interesting, park here for just a moment, that in Peter's day, in the culture that these men and women were living in, the expectation was for the wives to have the same religion as their husbands. This, in and of itself, more than implies that there are certain occasions when wives are not to submit to their husbands. By the very fact she had chosen a different religion in her husband's mind and eyes, her husband himself could be the subject of ridicule and embarrassment from his peers. So it was doubly important for the wife to submit herself to her unbelieving husband in areas outside of religion to demonstrate her loyalty to him as her wife. And this lack of submission in religion but submission in other areas would be a God-ordained way to win him to Christ. Notice also this concept of fear is picked up at the end of this section in verse 6. Do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, Peter's not advocating for wives to stay in abusive relationships. Rather, he's addressing wives who have limited to no rights in their society and still have boldly stepped out in faith, identifying themselves with Christ. It's these wives Peter is encouraging to let their fear of God trump whatever it is that they might fear from their husbands because of their identifying with Christ. There's another motivation Peter gives for strategic submitting, and it's this. This is what God values and considers to be very precious because it's an expression of one's hope in God. Our text says that explicitly, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. In other words, Submission is not rooted in one's culture or society's expectations. It's not rooted in one's husband being worthy of submission. Rather, it's rooted in God's expectation and desire for wives of all times and cultures. And thus, it's what pleases him. Finally, Peter gives illustrations of submitting and one specific illustration in particular. The holy women that Peter refers to here in, in verse 5, were most likely the patriarch's wives, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. All of them serve as examples of the kind of submission Peter is instructing wives to have towards their husbands. But why does Peter give an example of Sarah in light of the fact that he is addressing believing wives married to unbelieving husbands? Well, he does so because this section is addressed to all wives with a special application for wives who have unbelieving husbands. Uh, this is kind of a strange illustration for another reason. There are many occasions that Peter could have given for Sarah obeying her husband, even situations that put her in a very bad place physically. There are also at least 
three occasions recorded for us in Genesis when Abraham obeyed his wife, the last of which God specifically tells Abraham to do as she tells you. So why does Peter pluck this illustration out of Genesis 18? The time when God told Abraham that Sarah would have a baby when she was 90 and Abraham was 99. Peter probably uses it. I say probably, we're not sure, but think about this. Because it's one of the few times we have recorded what Sarah is thinking in her mind. Notice that Genesis 18.12 says, So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old. Peter uses this illustration from Sarah's life to show her normal way of thinking about her husband as her Lord, or one to whom she would submit and obey, and to encourage his readers to have the same inner attitude of the heart. Let me be clear, he's not saying that wives should call their husbands lords. For example, my wife has chosen on occasion to endearingly call me buckle. We looked up that word, and it is ironic. But she means much great respect by it, let me assure you. Now, having taken these verses, these six verses, to address the strategic submission of wives and how that it is respectful behavior that brings glory to God, Peter does something that he doesn't do in the previous two sets of instructions related to submitting to government and submitting to your authorities in your employment. He addresses the one who possesses the authority. These husbands would have found themselves the subject of the instructions for submitting to government authorities in 2.13 through 17, and many of them would also have been the subject to the instructions to servants in 2.18 through 25. <clears throat> now they find themselves in the position of authority by virtue of what Peter has already addressed to wives in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. But as I mentioned earlier, Peter doesn't address the exercise of their authority at all other than one possible indirect reference to it. What he does instead is to instruct them to live humbly with their wives. Verse 7 also begins with likewise, carrying the theme forward that all these interactions with their wives are to be done in the spirit of 2, 11 through 12, abstaining from the passions of the flesh for the purpose of God getting the glory from those who are observing from the outside. And Peter has two instructions for husbands, one motivation and one ultimatum. The first of Peter's two instructions is for them to live with their wives in an understanding way, since they are the weaker vessel. For some reason, the translator of the ESV that I've been using this morning chose to muddy this connection. The Christian Standard Bible makes this connection clearer. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. At first glance, it may seem that Peter is saying that women are weaker physically than men. And that might be what he's saying. I can tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that women are weaker intellectually, emotionally, or in any other way that some have misconstrued this verse to imply. Not even all women are weaker than men physically. I've known couples where the wife was physically taller and stronger than her husband. So on the other hand, another possibility that Peter may be saying is that the wife 
by putting herself in a place of submission to her husband in and of itself puts her in a weaker, more vulnerable position. He is in a place where he can take advantage of her submission for his own nefarious purposes. Whichever Peter may mean by weaker partner, he is instructing the husband to live with his wife, seeking to understand her, literally dwelling together according to knowledge, with knowledge being the most intimate of words to describe a husband-wife relationship in the same way as it's used in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. In other words, live with her in such a way that nothing interferes with the complete intimacy of marriage, emotional, intellectual, and physical. Don't you dare take advantage of whatever weaknesses she might have in connection with you. The second instruction Peter has for husbands is for them to show honor to their wives since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. This instruction implies that among Peter's readers, the husbands would have, by and large, had, had believing wives. And the culture of the time lends credence to this idea since wives generally followed their husbands in religion. Now, honor is an important concept in 1 Peter. Believers will receive honor from God, chapter 1, verse 7. They are instructed to honor all people, including the emperor, chapter 2, verse 17. By keeping their conduct honorable, those outside of Christ will see their good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's in this vein that husbands are to show honor to their wives. Taken together, we conclude that husbands are to live humbly with their wives not taking advantage of their position of authority for their own selfish reasons, but rather using it in an understanding way to bring honor to their wives. This brings us to the motivation. Our wives are heirs with us of the grace of life. In other words, this physical relationship we find ourselves in is temporal. It's important to note that in the eternal spiritual, more important relationship, we are equals. As Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And that brings us to the ultimatum, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I like how the NLT puts this phrase, if you don't treat her as you should, your prayers will not be heard. As I was meditating on this ultimatum, a thought passed through my head. I wonder how much of an ultimatum this actually is to most husbands. If their treatment of their wives hinders their prayers, would that make any noticeable difference in their lives? I would hope so. Guys, listen to me. God does not Respond to prayers of husbands who do not pay attention to the needs of their wives and show appropriate honor to them. Your relationship with God is at stake in how you live with your wives. If you can't communicate effectively with your wife, don't think you can with God. 
Friends, this is a hard teaching. We live in a culture where lawyers go to divorce camp. We live in a culture where when we read these words, we can become emotionally charged. They can set us on fire. Our own baggage also causes us to retreat and pull back. But I hope this morning that we've been able to see the beauty that can be demonstrated by two Christian spouses seeking to glorify God by acting respectfully in their relationship with one another. God sets the bar high, but he also gives us the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit inside of us, enabling us to live out the most wonderful, intimate, and picturesque of all relationships between human beings. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, this may have been a difficult passage for some to receive this morning. Lord, I pray that I would not have said anything that would have added to offense, but that the clear teaching of your word would have shown forth. And I pray that in all of our roles, whether they're husbands and wives or male and female, that they would be characterized by love, respect, honor, deference, and care for one another. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.